I am thrilled to be here with you and to share with you No For Go. And uh, what we've been doing with No For Go um, in the last four, maybe five years now, in the hospital setting. And I'm going to focus first on the hospital setting um, because it, that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where the decision-making um, really comes to a crux. And then we'll talk about maybe how this uh, can be applied regionally, uh, even from the government perspective, um, which we're working on in Ontario. So I'm from Canada, from Ontario, from the city of London, where we have a Piccadilly Street and a Thames River, and our university looks a little bit like Oxford um, in areas. Uh, so it's quite nice to be there. And we're two hours from Toronto and two hours from Detroit. So, No For Go um, is a tool that uh, we've developed over the last five years to improve decision making. And it's a passion of mine. I, I took some time off about four years ago to do a master's in health technology assessment and thought I would find some answers there on how to make decision making better and was somewhat disappointed that it didn't get me there. So I developed this thing called No For Go. And then our senior administration in the hospital were very kind, very excited about it when they heard about it and have implemented it across the hospital. And now there's interest uh, from the region as well as from our Ministry of Health. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Now, I don't want to speak um, too highly about No For Go and give you the false impression that it's perfect, because it's far from that. And I really, really want to stress that if you have any feedback or thoughts about how it could be better, I'm more than willing and open to hear that. And what we'll do first is a presentation. Um, I think in this uh, uh, format it'll work best. And then we'll have some time at the end for reflection, comments, feedback, rebuttals, whatever you have. That's great. I always learn a lot from my audiences and have presented this in a variety of places uh, in Canada and around the world. And uh, because of that, it's been refined um, based on the differing perspectives and experiences that people have kindly shared. So I do need to thank uh, the people at my hospital and the people at CIHR, the Canadian um, Agency for Research, as well as our national um, agency for health technology assessment called CADETH for their support. Uh, they have funded part of this. And then our, our high impact technology evaluation committee in the hospital and our EPICOR team, which is our evidence-based perioperative um, clinical outcomes research group. All right, so what are we going to do in the next few minutes? Well, we're going to talk, again, from the perspective of the hospital. We're going to talk about the importance of evidence-based health technology assessment in the hospital setting. And I'm going to start out by setting the context in what are the traditional challenges around decision-making and why it's not working in general. And then how we tried to answer to those particular challenges using no for go as a solution and what has been our experience and then future directions where we'd like to go from here. So hospitals in Canada are costly. I know they are here too. Uh, hospitals account for about 30% of our overall health expenditures. And then drugs beyond that um, also account for another about 17% of our total health care costs. So a lot of people ask me, why would you do this? Why would you start this um, type of a project in the hospital setting? <clears throat> well, the answer is, hospitals in Canada, in Ontario, is really where a lot of the action is. And it is really where the rubber meets the road. 
Technological innovations are often introduced first in the hospital setting. That's where uh, we have often the back door to new technologies um, entering the door at, at the hospital level. And these technolo technological innovations are restructuring health care in profoundly and somewhat unsettling ways. The demand for innovative and new uh, technologies, devices, drugs, procedures has clearly outpaced our capacity to address them in a systematic way. And this is all concentrated very much at the hospital setting. And it, it, to me, it created the perfect petri dish to, to implement a new tool or a new process for decision making that tries to bring in evidence-based decision making, that tries to bring in health technology assessment formally, but that is also accountable to the resources available. In Canada, we have a multi-layered uh, set of programs in health technology assessment. And uh, I think it's quite similar to the UK in that we consider drugs and devices and machines more commonly than we consider procedures which may or may not involve devices, drugs, or machines. We have a, a National Agents for Health, Agency for Health Technology Assessment, CADETH, which does assessments and they make recommendations, but these are in no way binding. Same with at our provincial level. We have OTAC, which is a Health Technology Assessment Committee, which makes recommendations, but again, in no way are those recommendations binding. So what happens in the hospital is that decisions are made and perhaps informed by the health technology assessment that has gone on and the recommendations, but perhaps not. So we needed something that addressed these gaps and the ability for things to walk in the back door. I consult part-time for the Canadian agency as well as our provincial agencies for drug assessment and non-drug technologies assessment. But when it really comes down to it, the decision-making at the hospital level really still needs a lot of help despite these external supports. When a health technology assessment is completed, we get a report that outlines the evidence as well as the expanded considerations such as ethics and feasibility, etc. But what we found in the hospital setting is that really wasn't enough to make the decision for us. External HTAs do beautiful health technology assessment reports, um, but in the end, those reports do not tell us how to prioritize. These reports need to be localized with considerations of infrastructure, existing technologies that we've already got in practice, our patient population, our internal needs, our external needs in the region, our health professional skills that are on hand, our learning curves, competing priorities, etc., etc. I really like health technology assessment um, because in the hospital setting, uh, again, because it's fast-paced, it has to be real-time. There's not a lot of time to wait for assessments to become available. Sometimes the train will already leave the station or the horse will be out of the barn if we wait for an assessment to be completed. And in the hospital setting, we have our end users. The very target of the recommendations are with us when we're putting together recommendations. And we can contextualize it to the local health setting. And it also makes us entirely and extremely accountable to whatever predictions we put into our recommendations or our models around what is going to be the resource requirement, what likely benefits will accrue from implementing this new device or drug or te other technology. And every decision that we make in the hospital setting is felt poignantly. 
It really is, because we're working within a box. We have four walls around us. We have a budget. And as soon as we make a decision for something, it means that we feel whatever we've given up. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that. So I call it HTA in a box. And it becomes something that we have to do truly, madly, and very deeply. It does go very deep because you're faced with the decision makers at the time that you're making decisions. It's not always comfortable, that's for sure. And yes, it is where the rubber meets the road. Uh, it's very easy to do health technology assessment when you're not the one who has to make the trade-off decisions. These decisions become moral dilemmas. No matter how we make the decision, somebody's going to get hurt i.e. for every decision to do something, it's a decision not to do something else, and you are going to hurt some part of the population. The hope is that you can maximize the good that you've done for your population with the range of decisions you've made. So, in order to tell you what we're doing today, I need to tell you what we've done in the past. Ten years ago now, we started a program called the Evidence-Based Prescribing Initiative in the hospital setting. Senior leadership in the hospital uh, recruited me to come in and start a program that tried to get evidence into practice around the area of drug prescribing. And that was a lot of fun. At that time, we tried to get the evidence straight. But we had a lot of rebuttals and a lot of pushback. Uh, rebuttals such as, evidence is biased. Full stop. I don't believe you. Numbers are tortured, statistics lie. Evidence, from evidence, let's just get on with it. I don't have time to wait for your assessment. It works, and I want it. There's no time for assessments here. And, of course, the ubiquitous, blind to the evidence. That's not the way I see it. And the inherent new is always better. If it's better, it's the presumption that it must always be worth it. Okay? Or that new must always be better, therefore it's worth it. And what we started to do over time was collate these particular rebuttals because um, they really were showstoppers to getting evidence into practice. So we called them symptoms of compromised decision making. And the most common categories of rebuttals were the evidence doesn't apply to my patient, i.e. my patient is just exceptional or unique. You can't say when that particular evidence applies to my patient. And what we found was that patients... Uh, according to the prescribing doctor or the, treat, um, the care provider, the exceptions were becoming the norm. Nobody wanted to admit that their patients are actually normal. Obviously, the evidence is wrong because everyone else is still doing it, was the other common rebuttal. And uh, we have examples here um, around which some of these rebuttals were launched. And again, commonly, this place is archaic. It's only about the bottom line, about cost. The dirty word, cost. Don't bring that into my decision-making when I'm responsible for a patient here. These are lives. And, of course, we have this key challenge of too fast or too slow um, to adopt things. We have in our hospital, and I don't think that we're unique compared to the UK, we have this thing called gizmo idolatry. Technology is fun. It's shiny. It's new. It uh, comes with purported advantages uh, compared to the old. And they just want it. And they feel that sooner is always better than later. And in the teaching center um, attached to the universities, we have the responsibility to be leading edge. So please just let us try everything out and be the leaders in such. And I need to be able to teach my residents, my fellows, um, my PGYs, about everything, about all the options out there. 
And this leads to what we call the technology hype cycle, where we overshoot implementation of new things. So we have this peak of inflated expectations. But then when we try it out and we see that it doesn't always work or in fact it caused some harms or we're not mm, adept enough to actually take it up into practice, then we fall into this trough of disillusionment before we figure out what the evidence really says about where its true place in practice should be. But the problem is here, if we have this peak of inflated expectations followed by a trough of disillusionment, we've got two major areas of inefficiency here if we've overtaken up or under-implemented any particular technology. So what we wanted to do was come up with something that smooths this particular curve in order to get good things into practice sooner, earlier, smoother, without overshooting but not have to um, be in this constant cycle of trying to always implement the new when it's not proven. And we have multiple opposing agendas in our hospital setting, just as you do in your setting. We have skills deficits, we have people that are territorial, they want just to be able to practice their particular pet surgeries. I don't care what the evidence says. Um, We have a lot of different agendas that are covert um, politically. Um, in our governments, as well as in our frontline practitioners. And of course, the average man's judgment is so poor, he runs a risk every time he uses it. Um, this, this is true. But most of us are not aware of that. So what can we do? We've got a lot of evidence out there. We've got some good health economics out there. How do we pull this all together? So when we tried to do this evidence-based prescribing initiative, we really kind of felt deflated. We went in with absolute excitement, passionate about getting evidence into practice. And we thought everyone would come to the party. Well, they did, but only to try to poke holes in the whole process and to dig in their heels and to say, I'm sorry, but my patients are exceptional. The exception is the norm. So we kind of felt like we're here on that curve in getting evidence into practice. But rather than just throw out throw in the towel and uh, collectively throw up our hands and give up, we decided to have another go. What we were doing at that time was pretty good, I think, um, considering it was 10 years ago, um, but not entirely unique. What we did was synthesize systematically through systematic review the benefits versus risks for a new drug or health technology assessment, or we used what others had done. Um, if it was uh, recent enough. And then we combined that with our local resource considerations, synthesized it through formal economic analysis, and you've been exposed to that today, I hear. And in that synthesis, we made recommendations for our local setting, often through made analysis and then formal cost-effectiveness analysis. But after doing all of that, and for many years, we found that systematic review does not equal the decision. Economic analysis does not equal a decision. Evidence is is one consideration, but not the only consideration for decision-making. This was startling to us, because the promise of evidence-based medicine, as the title almost infers, is that evidence should get you there. It should be fairly robust and tell you what to do. And economic analysis, I mean, that's even further along the path. It should tell you what to do but it didn't quite get us there. And we found that in all of our decisions that we were informing systematically by the evidence and through economic analysis, we found that yes was always perceived to be better than a no. 
And there's this propensity to say yes and this pressure for us as the community to say yes to everything and that there should almost never be the opportunity to say no. And it's unfair when you do, so they said. And so we moved on. We said, okay, evidence is essential, but we need a better way. Something's not working out here. So now we say evidence is essential, but insufficient. And we developed this thing called no for go. This was based on the premise that the application of evidence to decisions was too technical in and of itself. It was too linear. It was too blunt in the decisions that it was trying to inform or make. Evidence didn't come in the shape necessarily of our particular hospital. So we said evidence from expanded domains of influence also needs to be brought into the, each of the decisions that we make. Evidence from these expanded domains of influence include social, legal, ethical, environmental, etc. types of considerations. And we said we really need to somehow enumerate the opportunity costs. We need to be making explicit what is the opportunity cost before decisions can be made comfortably. And in doing so, we decided we have to be able to go where the evidence does not. And we need to actually bring in the concept of sleepers. And we, we created this particular acronym um, because it's a, it's a good one. It's memorable when we're sitting around the table trying to assess what are the expanded domains of influence on this particular decision. The sleeper is a social, legal, ethical, or considerations of equity, environmental, political, and entrepreneurial or research, and stickiness factors. So all of these expanded domains of influence, we said, have to be explicitly considered before we can make the decision. Otherwise, these very factors in and of themselves may trump the evidence prematurely. A political factor may come in and just make the decision for you if you're not systematic in actually getting these particular factors onto the decision-making table. The last one here, um, I think most of the categories speak for themselves. Um, when we talk about, uh, we look at social considerations that are unique to our particular environment. We look at legal considerations. We look at ethical considerations. And we look at equity across our hospital and our region now. We look at environmental and organizational factors. Very important when you're talking about taking up a new surgery technique or a new device. We look at the political factors as well as it relates to our hospital or our region. And we also look at what entrepreneurial and research opportunities also need to be considered. We'll talk more about that later. Because we're a teaching center, there are some opportunities in research and developing information that are worth the value of putting more resources in, perhaps. This last factor, the stickiness factor, confuses a lot of people, and it's not intuitive when you see that first. But the concept here is that whenever you have something already taken up into practice, it's a lot harder to take it back out of practice than it would have been to stop it from getting into practice in the first place. So a lot of our clinicians in our hospital and even our senior leadership team will say, well, why don't we just give this new technology or this new drug a try? in our hospital and just see what it's like. And then we'll decide in a year. Trouble is, if we don't explicitly enumerate this stickiness factor, we run into the problem of presuming that we could just as easily undo that practice 
once it's already got into practice. This very concept is very well enumerated by the late and great Bernie O'Brien in his paper, Is There a Kink in the Curve? And Bernie wrote about this, I think, very eloquently, where he says, the willingness to pay curve is really kinked in that people are willing to pay more to keep something that they've already had and enjoyed than they would have been to pay for it in the first place before they even had ownership of it. So it's the sense of ownership, the sense of tearing something away from you once you've already had it, makes it more valuable to, to you once you've already enjoyed it. So I need to tell you and show you what we do. How do we go here, and how do we go where the evidence dares not to better inform our decisions, to smooth that particular technology hype curve? Well, we need to first understand what we're talking about when we're talking about true cost. Has anyone seen this definition before? True cost. So cost is the sacrifice of consequences in the next best alternative use of resources. That's the real cost. It's not the dollar value on the drug or the device or the surgery that we're considering. It's actually the value of the next best alternative use of those resources. And this concept is very well espoused um, and is related to Newton's third law, where the, every decision to do one thing is a decision not to do another, or every action causes an equal and opposite reaction. And we use this as an analogy to the fact that we need to consider the benefits, the risks, the costs, but we also have to somehow enumerate what is foregone. If we're going to be able to determine what is the true cost of taking up this new technology instead of all the other options that we had on the table. And we call this no for go because you have to know when to go for the decision or when you have to know whether it's a no go. And these decisions have to be based on the four factors. Systematic review, objective evidence of the benefit versus risks, as well as the costs, as well as those expanded domains of influence, the sleepers, as well as what is foregone. And in doing this, what we do in our hospital is we work around a trade-off table. We bring the stakeholders for the decision around the table after we've looked at the benefit, risk, cost, sleepers, and we work with them to further enumerate or calibrate the sleepers and figure out what is the foregone benefit. So it's not an easy task, but what we have done is we've created the trade-off table to be like a pool table or a billiards table. And essentially what it's built on is the cost-effectiveness quadrant where we have the benefit index along the x-axis and the budget impact on the y-axis to get us started. What are we plotting? So for the budget impact, it's the incremental cost of taking up this new technology drug or device or procedure per patient in our real hospital setting, real-world setting, times the number of eligible patients that we would anticipate. And then we look at the benefit index. We're talking about the trade-off table, and uh, what we plot is something that's very practical, um, but it's very much localized, so our budget impact, got that there, and the benefit index, which is the number of eligible patients divided by the number needed to treat to benefit, really. Okay? It's not rocket science, but it is local, localized, and it fully engages the best available evidence about benefits, risks, and costs, 
And it also brings in the foregone um, opportunities, which I'll show you in a moment. So when we're sitting around this particular trade-off table, what we do is we, we draw in our go, no-go line. Okay, we'll come back to how we define that in the future. But to orient yourself, any decisions that come below this particular line, um, because now that you're familiar with the cost-effectiveness curve, you know that for increasing levels of benefit, you're willing to pay increasing numbers of dollars or devote increasing amounts of resources makes common sense. But if we talk about it, the corollary to that, for infinitesimally smaller benefits, we're willing to pay much less, if anything at all. Okay? So that's based on this premise. So anything coming in below the line means that we're likely willing to put out that amount of resource for that amount of predicted benefit. <clears throat> and so, if we have let's say, five different decisions that we need to plot on this particular trade-off table. A decision right at the, at the intersection of these two axes would be a decision as the, in the green ball where we have really no budget impact but really no known benefit either. If we have the blue ball, then we have loads of resource impact but really no proven benefit or risk. If we have the yellow ball on the right, on the horizontal axis, we have lots and lots of benefit, but really no known resource impact. So maybe there's some savings that come along with implementation. But most commonly, we have the pink and the orange ball, whereby there's some sort of increment of benefit for some sort of increment in cost, and we've got to make some pretty difficult choices. So. Over time, we've been plotting decisions on this particular trade-off table and making real decisions. And we now have over 40 decisions that are plotted. Um, and it's, it's uh, on the increment in terms of the number of decisions that are here. I say 40 because those are 40 formal. We've done a number of informals too. But if I put them all on here, it gets quite busy. Uh, and so what we do is we simply plot the benefit risk, um, so that benefit index. So how many of our patient population would we expect to benefit? for the amount of resource outlay that we have to put out in our hospital. <clears throat> and uh, we color these balls based on the focus, and the width of the ball is, is prorated based on the confidence intervals, or, or the amount of uncertainty. And uh, I mentioned that the color of the balls, um, if they are actually colored, it means that the decision's already been made. <clears throat> if the ball is gray, as in B and C, on the horizontal axis or on the vertical axis at the top, it means that those are decisions that we're considering today. If the ball is white, as A, D, and E are, it means that those are decisions that have not been taken up into practice, but which exist below the line for which we should have said go. But for some reason, we haven't gone and said yes to those decisions yet. So <clears throat> you can imagine in this particular case, if we are sitting down and considering whether or not we should take up B and C. And we'll call B inhaled nitric oxide for patients post-cardiac surgery. And we'll call C a special enzyme replacement therapy for a patient with a very rare disorder for whom we want to perhaps bridge over um, until they can get a bone marrow transplant, perhaps as definitive therapy for um, their uh, disease. <clears throat> They're very rare disease. So you can see that C and B have no proven overall benefit. 
Okay, we have, we have no proven benefit for either of these. We have huge budget impact. Okay, and this graph has been crunched down so that it fits on a page. But the budget impact is in the range of half a million dollars um, for both of these. Okay? Now, when we're sitting down and making these particular decisions, um, it's, it's not always easy. There's a lot of uncertainties, and you can see that C has a lot of uncertainty with it, which is the enzyme replacement therapy, because the evidence only showed one randomized control trial with very large confidence intervals around the one benefit that was measured, which wasn't even really clinically relevant. So in this particular case, what we would do then is make a table of the different um, options that we have on the table today. And uh, if we were considering inhaled nitric oxide, for example, for a variety of different um, indications, in this case, and the enzyme replacement therapy, um, and we have a few other things that are labeled here just to orient yourselves, um, in particular, the white balls, which are the things that we haven't taken up yet, which have a benefit, proven benefit, and are under that go-no-go line. Then what we would do is consider all of these decisions um, at once. What should we take up? There was a lot of pressure um, to take up the enzyme replacement therapy, and there was a lot of pressure, vehement pressure, to take up inhaled nitric oxide, um, especially for post-cardiac surgery and post-heart transplant surgery. Once we have these balls graphed or on the trade-off table, then we start to talk about um, the evidence generally, as well as the budget impact generally, and then we move into the expanded domains of influence. So I haven't showed you yet how we bring in the sleepers. So we have to decide which of these are we going to go or say no go to. <clears throat> so to bring in the sleepers now, again, reminding you what those sleepers are, we actually have to do surveys of the relevant stakeholders. What are the social, legal, ethical, environmental, political and research opportunities and innovation opportunities with each of these options before us. <laughs> For those white balls, we had already done them in the past. Okay, We now would just, if we're sitting at the table with these other live decisions, we'd now have to do it for whatever, for the um, B and C decisions at the top on the gray. So what we do is we, we um, f we survey our stakeholders using radial plots with the sleepers on each one of the axes of a, of a star plot, for example, and we survey them. We survey the physicians. We survey the patient groups. We survey our senior leadership team. Uh, we survey um, others who are in the hospital, other practitioners who are not necessarily um, experts or even proponents of the particular <coughs> technology in question. And then we come back, and we have data on those sleepers, and what is the purported weight of those sleepers on the decision. And we put a price tag on the ball if there's a significant sleeper issue. So in this particular case, with B, there were some significant issues um, that the physicians working in the area felt should trump the evidence, or the lack of evidence in this case. And those issues were such as, well, it's last-ditch rescue efforts. And we hope the inhaled nitric oxide will save somebody who we can't get off the pump when they're coming out of surgery, and or will get their pulmonary pressures down enough for us to bridge over at least a day until we can get them onto something orally once they're um, extubated. And how could you say no to that, despite the fact that there's no proven benefit? 
So that was the significant sleeper there. And these um, graphs here are hypertext, so we can actually get back in and find out what are the significant sleepers. For C, you can imagine what the sleeper issues could be for an enzyme replacement therapy for an exceedingly rare disease for which there's only one randomized controlled trial. The sleepers ended up being such as things such as we think it would be unethical to withhold this. Despite the fact that the single RCT showed no benefit, we think it's underpowered to have um, been able to show that particular difference. And what's $500,000 for the shot at a child's life? The other underlying issues um, were political. And it's interesting. The decisions that were made in this particular case <clears throat> were that we would actually say yes to the enzyme replacement therapy. And that was despite the fact that we presented the evidence and the lack of proven benefit and the huge impact on resources. The yes was based entirely on a political issue. And because we had done this sleeper's analysis, that particular issue became explicit. And there was some um, feedback that went across um, the hospital and the region because this was made um, explicit. And because this was early in our no-for-go process, it really helped to shape our future decisions. (coughs) The political issue was ramped up because a number of us got... uh, telephone calls personally to say that your face will be on the newspaper tomorrow if you don't say yes to this particular technology. And uh, the patient um, in this case was was the child of very influential parents in our community. And our hospital was undergoing a very sensitive um, political um, opportunity at the time whereby we were um, undergoing examination to become the center um, for innovation around a particular topic. And I can't really give all the details because I don't want to put anybody in jeopardy. But it gives you a flavor for the underlying things that occur. But in this case, at least it was made explicit. And we found ways to better address these political um, trump cards over the evidence with, with our future decisions. With B, The decision was to say no um, for inhaled nitric oxide, not outside of the research setting. Now, how does this help us to actually enumerate the foregone benefit? Well, in this particular case, we have an equation, which is essentially written out in words, with numbers if they want it, but the equation tells them, if we take up B, or if we take up C, or if we take up both, then those price tags, or those sleepers, which are marked by the price tags on B plus C, better be more than, or be valued to you more than, the benefits that A plus D plus E could have brought us. And decisions A plus D plus E were for technologies for which we know we could have saved some lives, prevented the need for some surgery, reduced length of stay, and in some cases, improved quality of life. In this case, our senior leadership decided for the enzyme replacement therapy that it was worth more than A plus D plus E. But it doesn't sit comfortably with all of us. Beauty of this is that A plus D plus E are always staring us in the face whenever we bring another decision to the table. Those opportunity costs are always there, and we have to weigh our new decisions 
plus the sleepers price tag against the opportunities that we're foregoing, which are now enumerated. And we have to decide explicitly whether or not those sleeper issues really are and should trump over A plus D plus E, which are lives saved, surgeries prevented, quality of life improved, and um, days of stay prevented. So that's how we do it. It's called no for go. And again, we have to bring these four dimensions of influence into the decision making explicitly. The benefit for evidence are the evidence for benefit versus risk, our local resource considerations, the sleepers, and then the foregone benefit. <coughs> the feedback from our particular institution um, has been very positive. It has really taken us forward in terms of our level of decision-making. It's made us a lot more comfortable in our decision-making, a lot more comfortable to say no or to change something that would have been a sleeper trump card into something that becomes not at all rated highly anymore um, compared with our opportunities foregone. It works. Uh, it's, it, it tends to resonate very well um, across the levels of decision-making in our hospital from senior leadership down to the frontline um, practitioners. It's multidimensional and nuanced in that it does bring in the sleepers systematically and it also brings in our very real local estimates of benefit and cost. So what is it that we're really buying if we take up this new technology? And we think that it's honest and accountable because um, we, we use, um, of course, objective evidence-based reviews, systematic reviews, <clears throat> but we also um, have to be accountable to our own particular limits in resources as well as um, our own particular social context, organizational context, etc. It also keeps us accountable because every time we sit down to the decision-making table, those decisions are staring in us in the face. So if you remember from our graph up here, when we sit down to the table next time, and let's say now we're considering ball number 8, or 28, or 6. And in that case, the balls would be gray. But again, we'd have to say, are these three worth more than A plus D plus E? A plus D plus E, which would cost less, and E, which even would save us money. The overall resource impact would be almost zero if we took up A plus D plus E. Are they really worth more than that? Quite often, once you make it this explicit for, tr for decision makers, even though they were vehemently advocating for a new technology or procedure, they tend to lay down their weapons after they've been through the process. And they say, my gosh, I had no idea that we were not yet implementing A plus D plus E, or I had no idea that A plus D plus E would give us that much tangible benefit to this hospital. I'm willing to say no. I'm willing to set down my armor, I'm willing to set down my badges and forego this particular opportunity because I see the value. Very tangible. <clears throat> it also embeds the decision in the context of the past, the present and the future. What do I mean by that? Well, again, back to that um, graph, when we're sitting down to this trade-off table, the billiards table, our past decisions are plotted here. They're colored balls but they are not permanently set in stone. If we're now deciding on, let's say, ball number 10, whereby we'd get some benefit but save some money, perhaps we should forego something that was already implemented, such as 12 plus 15. 
Okay, so those, it embeds our current decisions in the decisions that we've made in the past. This really helps orient us contextually in terms of past decisions that we've made and hopefully helps us get our house in order more and more into the future because we can't do it all at once. It also means that our future decisions, things that we know coming down, we'll plot them sort of in the background to show people what's coming up. And it means that decisions, once made, are not always live. They're not just a single event. Once a decision is made, if it is a no, it doesn't mean a forever no, it just means for now. That ball needs to be placed on the graph as a no, and in the future, if there's something better to trade off, we'll, we'll make it a yes. And that is where the extra comfort has come in um, from the decision makers. So the feedback. You remember some of the rebuttals that I brought to you at the beginning of the presentation. Now the feedback has been you know, a huge size of relief from decision makers, especially frontline decision makers, but also our senior leadership team, our VPs, where they say, oh, now I understand. I didn't kind of get the cost-effectiveness thing before. It kind of seemed ephemeral to me, not something very tangible. I didn't quite get the uncertainty around the evidence before. But now I understand. You've helped me to bring it all together. I, it makes sense. I can live with that. Uh, one particular physician about a year ago said, he's a surgeon, he said, I'm not happy with the decision, but I will accept it, knowing what I've seen now. <clears throat> and uh, things like, finally, you've shown me explicitly what I've tried to understand for years. And then we need more of this. And now the hospital wants to put the whole capital planning process through this no-for-go tool as well, which gives me a bit of the shudders, but we'll see how it goes. So we think that the tool might be dexterous. Um, we've, we started out in the world of drug therapies, because that's where my expertise originally lies, and then we've now also applied it to devices and surgical pr procedures. Increasingly, there's been some asks around how could we use this now to evaluate programs, okay, which are embedded with a number of technologies and opportunities, etc., um, I think there's opportunities there as well, though we haven't yet done it for programs. What are some of the surprising findings as we close up? Well, I think you'll find this interesting. There's been a lot of surprising findings, um, including by, from my own perspective, um, where before we always thought more technology is better, you know, more drug options on the formulary are better, more devices are, you know, at least having the option um, makes us um, more able to meet the individual needs of patients. <clears throat> but it's interesting. Uh, more and more we've come to experience that less is more. And that the more options that we have out there, the more complex and confusing it becomes, the more errors that occur, and the more likely that practitioners and patients are unsettled. Because as soon as they choose one option, they feel that they might be missing out on the other options that they had before them. So that's been a surprising finding. We've also found that even though in the past we sort of considered decisions to be more likely dichotomous, a yes or a no, or yes with conditions in some patients but not all, for example, now we consider that <clears throat> there is also the opportunity to say yes but only in the context of a bona fide research trial, often a randomized control trial in our own setting. Um, and we've also found that our clinicians are more and more accepting that yes is not better than no. Yes is also no. 
So here's the issue about moral hazard that we talked about just a few minutes ago. Whenever we say yes to something, we're trading it off against other opportunities that we could have spent our money on. And because of that, a yes to one thing is a no to something else. So we better be very comfortable that we've made the right yes. And again, decisions always being live has really made clinicians more comfortable <clears throat> to say it's a no today, but we'll see in the future, maybe it becomes, maybe our go, no, go line will change. And again, it causes us to be accountable to the evidence, to our own resource requirements, to the sleepers, and systematically so. And it causes us to enumerate what is the foregone benefit. A lot of people think that we're about the bottom line when we talk about money in the context of decision-making, healthcare decision-making, but to me, opportunity, uh, to me, money is not um, the bottom line. It's actually opportunities. Monies are just the proxy for opportunities. Whenever we make a decision that's going to save us money, we immediately put that money into another opportunity. It's not that we just have more money in the bank. And opportunity itself may present more than once, but you can only spend the same dollar um, once. So opportunity might present twice, but you can only spend the same dollar once, so you better make sure you take up the right opportunity. And the other surprising finding was that we really need to subtract before we add, meaning that if a clinician or a group is asking for something new and it's going to be an increment in cost, then we have to ask them, well, what are you going to give up? because we can't implement something without extra dollars in our bank, and we truly don't have extra dollars in our bank, so we actually have to get them to subtract something before we actually add it, another new thing. Future efforts. We'd like to f further develop no for go in other settings, in other contexts, um, because we learn so much more about its capabilities when doing so, and it gets further refined um, when other people are using it. We'd like to further develop it also for considering research opportunities, and our research wing is very, is very um, interested in doing so because a number of decisions really should be yes but only in the context of further research if the value of ascertaining more information is worth it once we graph it on the map. We'd also like to get better um, at our decommissioning um, opportunities. A number of the colored balls that you saw on our graph, you can see they're well beline, below the line of go, no go because they were decisions that might have preceded um, our ability to address the de those decisions systematically. So now we need to look back at those and get better at disinvesting now. Um, and the sleepers become a huge issue, and that S factor on the sleepers, the stickiness factor, you have to be very careful to enumerate what it's going to take to undo a practice, and you have to be very honest about that. Uh, our region is interested in using it as well as our ministry and uh, other prov provincial um, another province's ministry has contacted us, contacted us to use it as well. We'll see how that goes. And now we're moving more and more into the area of, uh, of um, less tangible technologies such as procedures um, in and of themselves, which brings a whole new raft of sleepers with it. <coughs> so in summary... I hope I've shown you that Hospital HTA um, is a good petri dish for trying something like this out um, before we try it in the more broader range of contexts. Traditional decision-making failed us, has failed us in the past, so we moved on. Um, traditional decision-making, evidence-based decision-making, again, can be very linear um, and doesn't necessarily take on the nuances of the decision at hand systematically. So we created this to do just that, to answer to that gap. 
And we found that if we're to engage rather than alienate our decision makers, whether it be the VPs in our hospital or our frontline practitioners, we need to make HTA and evidence-based medicine relevant, explicit, and tangible. That's why we do the graph, the trade-off table. Provides a framework to explicate the evidence and its uncertainty by toggling the width of the balls while acknowledging the sleepers and enumerating, explicitly enumerating what's the foregone benefit. We found that if we don't make this explicit, then the sleepers often trump very important decisions. They often trump the evidence, even when it's very clear evidence that something does not work. Sometimes the politics just takes over. Making the sleepers explicit and the forego explicit has been our saving grace in terms of comfort in decision making. And you'll notice that there's a lot of things um, that no forego espouses and incorporates and tries to bring together to the decision making table. Yes, evidence-based decision-making is there, HTA is there, medical economics is there. And then there's some other flavor of game theory and program budget, PBMA, um, and accountability for reasonableness, which you may want to read more about to make us accountable and robust in our decision-making. That makes us live within our means, and that makes us smoother on this um, technology hype cycle. So we have a way to address the overhype and the underhype explicitly. So with that, we'll close. We're drowning in information while starving for wisdom. We hope that this process has gotten us closer to wisdom. But again, it is not perfect. And many thanks for your um, attention and for your patience with my my voice. Now, I'd like to take some time um, to have some feedback and some discussion and uh, hear your thoughts, comments. And uh, your feedback here is most welcome, and by email as well, if, um, if you'd like to do that over time. Well, thank you very much indeed.